Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Nami Inouyen, welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. And finally, on Our Changing World tonight, mangroves have a rather mixed reputation. Some people regard them as weeds whose expansion needs to be controlled, while others value their role as coastal nurseries and flood protection. Veronica joins nature writer Kennedy Warne for a paddle and walk on Motu Manawa or Pollen Island to find out about one of our more unusual native trees. Oh, the lovely <laughs> Glorious match. <laughs> well, Motumanua, the island of mangroves, we're on the shell bank part of it and we're heading to the main terrestrial bit, so the main land bit, which is probably about half a kilometre away, I think. So we're just negotiating the cockle shell banks, which geologists call shamirs, and uh, these are constantly changing. And where we're walking through right now, we're seeing that some recent storms have stripped away the sediment from around the roots of the mangrove trees. And they're like cables, which are just kind of stretched out maybe um, 20, 30 centimetres above the mud. So their sediment's gone. And but they're looking each, healthy still. For each bush, it's like four or five times as big an area oh, than yeah. the bush itself yeah, it's takes. it's huge. Them. That, that's the fascinating part. People who know mangroves will know the snorkel roots that stick up, and they're, they're just a, like pencils sticking up through the um, mud. And there are vast numbers of them, and it's only when you see a situation like this that you realise that all of those are connected by these cable roots back to the tree itself. They need all those snorkels, of course, to get oxygen because the, the mud in a mangrove wetland has very little oxygen in it and so they need these snorkels to actually breathe air from the atmosphere to get enough oxygen for their processes, their metabolism. It seemed like an unlikely place to have a protected area out oh, here. Piece oh. of urban wilderness. Yeah, you've got the Rosebank Road industrial sector right there. We're looking at the Sky Tower and the Harbour Bridge and we've got two densely populated suburbs of Waterview and Teatatu and then in the middle is this precious little remnant which at various points in the last hundred years was slated to be an airport and then an actual shipping port and then the, the, the council was going to um, fill it all in and reclaim the lot but in the end, we've ended up with this wilderness, a protected area. There's a bit of concrete in here, yeah, right, where we're walking. Well, we're we're so. in a very interesting place. So this, this is the remnant. So the European name of this island is, is Pollen Island, and that's named after Daniel Pollen, a doctor, a brickmaker, and for nine months, the premier of New Zealand. And he needed lime for his bricks that he made in Rosebank Road. And the lime came from the cockle shells of Motumanua. And he bought the island, so it became Pollen Island. And he would have taken out 
billions of cockle shells. They're still on Google Maps. You can still make out the trace of where his railway line would have connected this concrete kind of a storage area, or just they'd put it, you know, tipped them here, mounded them up here, and then railed them across uh, across to where his brickworks were. Back to the factory. Yeah. So and it's only, there's less than, uh, you know, five, well, 500 metres or something. Yeah, 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 to the mainland. And that's, uh, yep, that's where his factory was somewhere down there. So, yeah, there's still a few remnants of um, Holland Island's industrial past, but now it's all reverting to a natural area. A lot of seabirds here, some, some rare land birds are here, the fern bird is here. Yeah, but as you say, Veronica, it's just so... Remarkable that there's 100,000 vehicles crawling along State Highway 16, the Northwestern Motorway, every day, and we're seeing, you know, a constant flow of vehicles just about, what, 500 metres from where we're standing? And um, how many of those people know what, what, what's going on here? So it's, it's great. They might look at it and think of it as a scrubby bit of coast, really. Yeah, well, mangroves, of course, have always had that bad rap. They've always been seen as wastelands of no importance when they are wetlands of supreme importance and I never lose my excitement or my fascination for these special places and I think it's partly because they are overlooked and they're maligned people think of them as muddy mosquito infested places um, and not realize that they are wondrous places full of strange things So there's the little mustard yellow flowers. I've had mangrove honey in Africa, in, in Tanzania, and I've had it where else? Oh, I've had it in a few yes. other places, and yeah, it's terrific. Oh, in the Sundarbans, in Bangladesh, in the Sundarbans, there are honey collectors who work in the mangrove forest, world's largest mangrove forest in the, the, the Sundarbans, and they collect wild honey from the mangrove trees, and it's unbelievably tasty, it's unbelievably good. So, yeah, a little, if you get your head close enough, you can just get that gorgeous. Yeah, I just did get a sniff. You really, you really it's, it's a good aroma. You really need such to get an open flower one. And such a sweet aroma. These trees that can live with one foot in the sea and one foot on land, you know, they're, they're just amphibious trees. There's this group of plants and trees that can do this thing. You know, any other tree would just die within hours and here they are able to withstand the twice daily immersion by salt water. Let's have a closer look and maybe you can talk me through how they do it. Coping with salt but also with well, water and no yeah. water. Now this group, this is, um, so this belongs to the genus Avicennia and our mangrove, Avicennia marina, is in fact the, well, I think it's the most widespread species of mangrove. I've encountered this very same species in um, Eritrea on the Red Sea. And there, one of their ways of getting rid of salt is to excrete it on the leaves. You don't really see it very much here in tropical countries where where the heat and the stress, the heat stress is extreme, you actually see salt crystals on the bottom of the leaf like a potato chip. But here in New Zealand, if you, if you lick a leaf, it's certainly salty. salty. Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're secreting a little bit. So the mechanism would be the same. Yeah, but, but you just don't even really see the big crystals yeah. of salt that you do in the, in the tropics. So the species itself would be native to New Zealand, but yeah. widespread yeah, it is. globally. So, yeah, I mean, as you know, the little 
propagules or the seeds, the little green, what we used to call leaf books when we were kids, because they've got eight pages and well, four leaves. And you, you pretend, I used to pretend that I was reading a story by flipping through the leaves of the leaf books. And so they're, they're just going to float for hundreds, thousands of kilometres. And when they reach an appropriate, the right sediment, away they go. They've spread far and wide. So yeah, it's a native, but not an endemic. It was not a not not exclusively New Zealand. And the only species in New Zealand. It is the is... only one, and its geographical limit, I think, is about Kafia on the west coast of the North Island, and somewhere around Ohiwa on the east coast of the North Island. So the Bay of Plenty to sort of um, uh, Waikato. Anything south of that, it's too cold for them. So they're living, I always think that they've got enough stress to cope with from that immersion in salt water. Additional temperature stress is just too much for them, so they, they can't cope. They're a northern thing, so um, it's something special, a taonga for the north. In the tropics, they're known to be an important nursery for anything from fish to invertebrates, any marine creature. Is that the same in more temperate regions? Is yes, that true for I th- Yeah, I think so. Most of the research that quantifies this is done in places where there are mangroves, sometimes 20 different species of mangroves, 25. Uh, Malaysia, you know, I think has 27 species in, living in the same location. Those places, they've been studied intensively, and maybe 75% of fish that are caught for human consumption have some part of their life cycle often as little fish you mentioned nurseries and the root system the labyrinth of roots and trunks and stems and you know pneumatophores that make up a mangrove wetland is absolutely ideal for um, little critters to hide from larger things that want to eat them so they have this um, tremendously important role sharks some species of sharks they have their pups in the mangroves and and then uh, when the pups are large enough, they'll swim off to coral reefs and elsewhere. So, you know, all sorts of species have their young, their juvenile forms um, occupy this excellent uh, sanctuary, this excellent marine nursery stroke sanctuary. Same in our more temperate regions? Well, I think so. Yeah, yeah look, fish? they are. I mean, there's... Uh, a, Mullet live here, flounder live here. When divers have started to get interested in documenting what's living in mangroves, and the list just keeps getting longer and longer. So they are having that role here. It's just a, it's just a superb place to hide. Why do you think they have such a mixed reputation? Well, it does stem from ignorance, really. It's only been more recently, I suppose, that a lot of people who've come for, let's face it, uh, settlers who've come from, from places where there are no mangroves would have looked at these sort of fringe areas and thought, well, that's not doing much good. Let's reclaim that for pasture, that sort of thing. So there, there's been this long history from the European side. Maori, of course, have always esteemed mangroves as a part of their larder, part of their, their food cupboard. And the problem, the particular problem we have now is that mangroves... Unlike most parts of the world, where mangroves are really in trouble, they're being chopped down, they're being uh, removed for all sorts of purposes. Here in New Zealand, they're actually spreading. And the reason they're spreading is that we continue to you know, have erosion problems, so a lot of siltation coming off the land into the sea. And lo and behold, what plant loves to live in soft sediments? Mangroves. So they're opportunists. And if we human beings create a suitable uh, substrate and habitat for them, 
Well, those little green leaf books are going to find it and, and mangroves are going to take over. So when I hear people who want to remove mangroves because they, they don't like the view or they're blocking where they had access to uh, launch a boat or something or other, I can understand it but have no sympathy because it's not the mangroves' fault. <laughs> mangroves are just doing what they do. They find this, these areas and they'll thrive in them and create their little forests. Flip that relationship around, though. I mean, mangroves are not just a nursery for marine creatures. They could be helpful. Well, they, Almost like a coastal fringe to protect uh, us from inundation. Well, they do, of course, other things as well. They have tremendous ability to stabilise a soft coastline. They're preventing erosion of the land. They also are a wonderful filtration system. You know, people can refer to them as the kidneys of the coastline, and they're you know, extremely good at filtering out nutrients and, and, and pollutants coming off the land, so protecting the sea. But yes, as you say, from the other way, uh, what about impacts coming from the sea? Um, storm surges. Research has been done that, that's quantified the ability of mangroves to quell sea surges and to you know, dissipate the energy of those waves, again, through that labyrinth of trunks and roots that they have. They're a breakwater. They're a coastal buffer. And um, the great tragedy in the tropics and Southeast Asia and Central America is so much of the mangrove fringe or buffer has been removed. In some countries, you know, I'm thinking Vietnam, thinking Thailand, thinking places like that, up to 70-80% of mangroves have been lost to shrimp farming and, and shrimp aquaculture has been the biggest cause of mangrove loss. And lo and behold, the poor, the, the, the coastal poor who rely on mangroves don't get any employment in, in, in shrimp farms by and large and not a labour-intensive industry. They bear the brunt then of storm surges that strike that coast because their mangrove buffer has been taken away. There's a good chance we'll see more expansion in the future by what yes. you were referring to before with more um, runoff from the land, but also oh. with an increase in temperature. Yeah. I'd imagine they'd be going south. Yes, they would. Uh, you know, every degree of temperature rise that we see is going to translate into a latitude extension of mangroves. So, in Vicargal, watch out. Not only are you going to get uh, <laughs> vineyards. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's going to happen, and there's no stopping it because, as I say, these plants, they're opportunists. They have a terrific dispersal mechanism. I mean, what could be better than just plonking your seeds into the tide, which uh, just takes them wherever? They're poised for southern expansion. You obviously appreciate them. What is it about them? I've always liked them because they're overlooked. They, they seem to me that they're like the, um, the stone that the builders rejected, if you wanted to be biblical about it. They've just, you know, people just don't bother with them. Well, they didn't used to. I mean, now people, you know, getting enlightened, building boardwalks through mangroves because they're cool places to be, especially at high tide when you see all sorts of things coming in. You feel like you're in the home of a whole lot of uh, wonderful marine creatures. So, yeah, I've, I've liked them for that reason and also just that they they're just a bit mysterious. You've got to investigate. You've got to get in there and get a bit muddy. It repays the adventurer, and um, that's, that's what I like about them. The other big thing that, that I think is, is so crucial now is that it turns out that mangrove forests are some of the best carbon storage habitats in the world. They sequester they lock up carbon in their root system. They say that leaves 
twigs, branches falling down into that soft, squelchy mud that we've been walking through will just sit there and gradually, you know, sink with new layers of sediment and maybe sit there for a thousand years. Well, this is like a vault. You know, you're locking up a, a terrific amount of carbon. And as everyone's looking around now for ways to sequester carbon, ways to decarbonize, here we've got a plant that is really, really good at that. You know, we should be looking after them, encouraging them. If we want carbon storage, I mean, there's the, we've got this ready-made uh, system right, right here. Kennedy Warren is a nature writer who appears regularly on Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan to talk about his adventures off the beaten track. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Ka kite anō.